Time now for this week's quote of the week. I love this. This is uh, from Kareem Abdur-Jabbar, NBA player. He said this in quotes, The whole country has gotten a severe case of carpal tunnel syndrome from the newest popular sport of extreme finger wagging, not to mention the neck strain from Olympic tryouts for morally superior head shaking. I love that one. The whole country's gotten a severe case of carpal tunnel syndrome from the newest popular sport of extreme finger wagging, not to mention the neck strain from Olympic tryouts for morally superior head shaking. My goodness, if there wasn't that, we'd have no guests on the regular talk radio show. Unlike here, of course, when we're talking about finance and about economics, and that's why I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Paul Beatty. I mean, these guys have done such a remarkable job at BT Global. Uh, not an easy job, by the way. I mean, you look at their original growth, uh, BT Global Growth Fund, started in September 2006. Double-digit returns are the norm for these people, uh, especially in a difficult environment. That's why, what a great time to get Paul on the line with me. Paul, appreciate you finding time for us this weekend. And I just want to start with a perspective. Uh, I mean, we just went through, I think I think it's pretty safe to say, a very wicked January. Uh, we certainly had some recovery since then. But what does that do when you look at uh, managing money and looking at stocks? Did, are you just looking for stuff to go on sale, or does it make you cautious, that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, Mike, good to be on the show uh, uh, once again. I, I'd have to say that um, you know January, first couple of weeks, frankly, of February, uh, to start this year, have been very tough. Uh, I think it's. I don't think anybody, uh, any professional managing money, is having uh, any fun, particularly in Canada, uh, this year and the tail end of last year. In fact, I'd say it's as, as tough as back in '08. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I think you know a lot of your listeners are probably frustrated with their portfolio returns. Uh, recently, and uh, I would just say uh, you're not alone. I mean, uh, I think everybody is quite frustrated. Lots of volatility, lots of unpredictability, um, and a lot of randomness. You know, and so it's 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 as tough as I've ever seen it in 30 years of finance. Do you uh, again, when you look at this kind of environment, does that tell you I'm going to back off? I've got to wait and see till much clearer direction uh, gets established in the marketplace. Yeah, I think it's a. I do believe it's a time for caution because, I mean, the, the things we're watching are the uh, global banks. Uh, so you know, take a look at uh, HSBC's uh, share price. Take a look at Deutsche Bank's share price. All the European banks. You know, in Canada, our banks are, uh, are much better positioned. The uh, U.S. I think has done a great job. You know, recapitalizing all of their banks. But you know, these other global banks, uh, the stock prices are not doing well. Uh, Don Cox uh, said this. Uh, earlier in his call this week, saying uh, we cannot have a uh, healthy uh, stock market, uh, you know, global stock markets, if we don't have uh, the banking sector at least doing, you know, okay or well. So if these bank stocks are falling, I don't see how the markets uh, uh, outperform or, or do do that well at all. So it's easy to watch, right? I mean, just to put them all on your screen, uh, HSBC in particular, because I think you know, basically the. the the central governments, uh, central banks are are dictating a whole lot of policy. Well, who finds out about their real policy first? It's probably uh, mm-hmm. you know these global banks, and so uh, if they're not doing well, maybe there's something out there that. Uh that we don't fully understand, and maybe we should be cautious, too. Well, I'm certainly wondering, uh, you know, one of the questions I've had over the last year is, who lent the money to the oil industry? 
it was, you know, as I said, it's one thing to be the borrower, but the real problem is who was the lender. I mean, I, I, you know, we could take that and we can take, we look over what's gone on in Deutsche Bank, you know, where the head of Deutsche Bank gives me one of those really scary, everything's okay kind of talks, because it usually oh. isn't when they say that. Uh, how, about the fact, how about the fact that they bought back uh, some of their stock and said, oh, we're going to buy back some of our bonds. I mean, this is, this is preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> they have fifty billion in equity, and uh, you know that their their derivative book is thirty two trillion. Yeah. Okay. And then they're uh, they're levered, you know, forty five to one on their equity book, and then, and then they say they're going to go buy back a little, a few bonds, and, a, and and maybe a little bit of their own stock. I mean, you're right. It's 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 more politics than. Uh, finance. Yeah, and I, my own just my own anecdotal experience is when they start making those statements, I really get nervous. Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's the old yeah. endorsement of the coach. You know, your team's lost twelve in a row, and you get the stamp of approval from management. Wow, oh, he's doing great. You know, and then a yeah. week later they're fired. No, no, absolutely. They've got uh, they've got a two trillion dollar balance sheet. Yeah. And they say, oh, we're going to buy back, you know, uh, $50 million worth of bonds. Well, who cares? Right? <laughs> I, I, I didn't like that at all. I, I, yeah, I didn't I, either. But, uh, but then sure. I come back to the Canadian banks, too. I'm just wondering the level of exposure. I mean, from what I've read, it's the Bank of Nova Scotia that's got more exposure to our oil patch. And I just can't help but think the longer these oil prices stay down is, you know, it's very much like amateur investors, actually. You know, they, they get into a lot of wishful thinking as something drops. And the wishful thinking has been that oil was going to sort of start with a V bottom, and then it's uh, going to have a recovery. If you, I'm sure you've noticed that every single report that came out of government and their, and their budgets always has a more optimistic view than the futures market does, you know, where people are really betting their own money. And uh, yeah, and I, I think that that's also uh, impu- uh, impacting the banking sector who lent some of that money. Well, I think uh, our analysis, and, then, and this isn't, you know, detailed analysis, we're getting this from brokers, and, you know, who do the work and try to bring us up to speed. But I mean, um, I, uh, Bank of Nova Scotia does have uh, about 16 and a half billion of exposure to the energy sector. But I think what happened is they went and borrowed a lot of that money in the U.S. or lent that money in the U.S. So they, for some reason, you know, one of their divisions, I think, decided uh, energy was a great thing. And, and of course, the problem with the U.S. energy companies is that they're all way more levered than the Canadian ones. Yeah. And so, and I think the bond market, you know, the junk, the high yield market in the states basically financed most of the, um, of uh, you know, the energy patch. So I, it's it's tough to figure out how much the banks are truly exposed, uh, but they are exposed, and they're collaterally exposed too, right? All the service companies and and whatnot as well. And uh, they 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 claimed it. it's like a you know two three percent. I've seen this in bank reports. They're saying, oh, you know, we're exposed to two or three percent of our book. I mean, I just. I just, I doubt that. I mean, I, I just can't imagine. Every Canadian is exposed to energy. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny you saying that, but certainly Canadians don't seem to understand that. I mean, we've sat back now for two years and watched the Bank of Canada say, oh, we're not quite as strong as we thought we were. The finance department, oh, the economy's not going to grow at the level we thought it was. And every one of those, as you say, especially the important point you're making, it's uh, energy-related. I mean, it's not just energy, but their service country. Uh, um, Sorry, service companies. Also, you could get into the fallout from commercial real estate in areas like Calgary, uh, you know, manufacturers in Quebec. The list is a long one. Obviously, oh. it is, or it wouldn't be rippling through the economy like this. Absolutely. I mean, we had one CEO of a, of a oil and gas company, you know, based in Calgary. They came in and saw us this week. And uh, you know what they told us? They said uh, they, they think 20% of the commercial real estate in downtown Calgary is now vacant. 20%. Wow. And then they said, uh, forget us paying rent. You know, we're doing well. Their company is doing well. And uh, 
or so they tell us, and they're you know they're hiring people. They did they just did an acquisition. They said uh, we're actually getting paid to move into our new office space. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so so when you know when the real estate guys tell you that that uh, you know real estate values are holding up, I I suspect that underneath the commercial lease, like they're not getting twenty dollars a foot, they're getting zero. And uh, so I, I I am very skeptical on all all this energy related stuff. I don't think it's doing a nearly as well as anybody uh, hopes anyway. Yeah, I see, yeah, we need, yeah. we need so, oil prices to go up, right? I mean, we need, and, and forget $5. We need oil prices to get up to, I'd say, 50 right? Yeah, which is, as we can appreciate, is a phenomenal move from this point. You know, that's a nice yeah. 70% gain. Uh, you know, <laughs> or take the lows at 26, that's nearly 100% gain. Well, I'll tell you one, uh, we had, we had a, um, uh, a gas fellow in there, um, you know, he knows, runs a terrific company in Canada. He's still making money at these low... Uh, gas price, natural gas prices. And, you know, they convinced us that natural gas actually has got to go up. And I was sitting, you know, we've been debating back and forth, you know, what natural gas stocks should we buy or when and everything. Then it, it just occurred to me that why don't we just buy natural gas itself? Mm-hmm. Because, uh, because I think he's right that inevitably it does have to go up, right? I mean, the, the poor coal guys are getting killed. Everybody, all the governments want to switch to natural gas uh, generation, you know, for electrical, electricity generation, whatnot. Uh, vehicles are changing. There are a lot of positives. In fact, you know, America is going to is is exporting huge gas now uh, down to Mexico. They're going to be the first to start exporting to Asia. So I, I think that gas that business is changing, and, and gas at a dollar seventy five, it almost has to go up. So. That'll be another play, but but you're right. Oil oil moving from 32 to 55 is going to be a terrific opportunity. I, and, I, and I guess it all comes down to timing. And I'll I'll ask Paul Beatty about that, co-founder of BT Global, in just a couple of minutes. But you know, I got to take a break. I've also got a shocking stat for you, and it, actually, one of them is related to that oil business. All of that coming your way on the Chorus Radio Network. Coming up, we're going live to the trading desk. I've got Ozzy Jurek. I've got a goofy award, but right now, very pleased to have with me, Paul Beatty is here from BT Global. Uh, Paul, let's talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, you look at the energy, and I just want a quick question on that. People are always here chomping at the bit. They're trying to pick the bottom. They're trying to say, this is the time, et cetera. How do you approach that side of it? Do you say, hey, look, I don't know where the bottom is, but I got three years to hold this thing or five years to hold this thing. Is that how you go about it? Well, I, I don't think picking the bottom in anything is a good idea. I mean, you could be right, but you're, you know, there's probably a higher probability you're going to mistime it. Sure. So, so what do you do? I think the worry. I think a lot of um, of you know educated, very professional oil analysts think or, or feel is that there's there's a capacity issue in North America. Not only the geopolitical stuff, but the, there's a capacity issue at Cushing, right? Mm-hmm. And if you get to too much oil and no place to store it, it's a disaster. And, I mean, a disaster meaning oil could go down $10 overnight. Right? I just want no to just hold on that just for a sec, because that's such an important point, that uh, they're worried about storage, you know, getting too full. It's like a bucket, and you can't pour it nonstop into the bucket. And if it can't get into storage any longer, it gets too expensive, then it hits the open market right there. And as you say, Paul, presto, that's where you get a spike move down. Right. And, and, and I, we've listened to enough smart people who know what they're talking about who are suggesting that that could happen in the next couple of months. Yeah. So who are who are we to say? Oh, that's not going to happen. We're we're not saying that. We're saying, hey, if that happens, that's not good. So we've decided. Let's wait. Let's just 
let's just uh, see if this happens. Now, the other problem is the refineries start to shut down this time of year. That means they don't bid for oil. And that is going to happen. And yes. so it, it may happen in the next couple of months. We may have another leg down, as as you mentioned in your show before. That uh, And so I think it could have another leg down. It makes sense that it will have another leg down. The other thing is I don't think the, the Saudis and the Russians and all these folks getting together is going to happen in the next uh, few months. So so let's... Uh, Let's uh, let's wait till the summertime, and uh, and I th- I think they want carnage. B- believe me, I think the mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia wants carnage in developing new uh, oil fields. So you know, offshore Brazil, Alaska, you know, some of these massive shale plays. They want to put that to an end, or at least you know, yeah. for for ten years. And I think they haven't accomplished that quite yet, but they're close, right? So a bunch of bankruptcies of frackers and stuff is is going to uh, is going to accomplish that goal, right? Of putting some fear into the market for the longer term. So uh, I think that's all going to happen in the next sort of six, seven months. So why don't we wait till July and uh, have this conversation again and see what... Uh... Absolutely. Actually, I'll hold you to that. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's set another stage here. It's, it's coming to the end, uh, RSP season. I only mention that because that's a time when people seem to focus, or a lot of people, more focused on this kind of thing. And Where am I going to put my money with the RSP? And, and I always say, well, don't worry, you can put it in cash. I mean, you can put it in a 90-day deposit, a 30-day deposit, you know, until things sort out a little bit. Um, are, are there areas of the market that make you comfortable or, or or let's say, and I, again, I know this is broad advice, but you know, your neighbors come to you and say, "Paul, what do you think I should do?" It's RSP season. I got, I got, like, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I've still got a good 15 years till retirement. Well, listen, I think that the good news is uh, uh, the markets in Canada are becoming good value, right? I mean, uh, we've had a very tough nine months. Uh, you know, some stocks are down 20 percent or whatever, but you know, like. 30% or 40% of the market's down 60, 70%, right? So there's value everywhere. We personally think uh, that there's going to be a takeout or a go private transaction announced every week, one company per week for the entire year. And by the way, we're ahead of that already. Uh, you know, we're seven weeks into the year. There's been at least at least uh, 10 uh, go private transactions on it. Uh, and they're going to happen. So I think uh, there's great opportunity if you can find one. So we picked Lakeshore was our biggest holding, and uh, uh, Tahoe came and took it out. Listen, the CEO of Amaya Gaming, you know, it's a $5 billion organization, he came out and said, my stock is so cheap, I'm going to work on taking it private. At, uh, and he even named a price. He said he gave us a, a, a timeline, which is, by the way, next week. And he said, I'm, we're going to do it at $21. And the stock was at 15 or something. The stock's very close to it's $20 right now. I personally think he's going to be able to pull this off. I think his stock is stupidly undervalued. Uh, three years from now, it's going to be worth 50 or $60. So why wouldn't they take it private at you know, 21 22 23 mm-hmm. whatever? So uh, these things are going to happen all summer long. Uh, well, uh, all year long, but all the way through to the summer for sure, if the stock market you know doesn't uh, improve. Uh, but wouldn't it be also be... in conjunction with the currency? I mean, you've got that stock market right. underperformance, and then if you're sitting and you're an American looking at this, uh, you know, it's right. like, like our, our quality housing market, we're on such a sale right now. I, I just can't figure they're not going to be stampeding, stampeding here as soon as they figure uh, it out. And it's ridiculous because a lot of our businesses, a lot of our companies that are public, you know, they, they do 90% of their business in the States. So yeah. you, you go buy a Canadian company that does business in the States and you have to pay a third less because of the currency. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. And so the multiples are lower. I mean, uh, look, uh, Rona was given an offer uh, uh, the other day. Uh, nice premiums. The energy companies are being bought because they're frankly just cheaper in Canada than they are in the States. Yeah. So, 
this is not going to stop. Uh, I th- I, I, if the Canadian market doesn't move up in general, then then we're going to get picked over uh, on takeovers, M&A, and frankly, going private transactions. And any um, any sort of sectors that way that are interesting you that say they're just more ripe than others because, one, they may do a lot of business in the States or they have a tendency to be more uh, cash-rich or asset-rich, debt, you know, and, and limited debt, that kind of thing. I mean, I know you always look at cash flow. Yeah, we're just cash flow investors. So, I mean, anything that's trading below, say, six times, uh, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA, is a takeover candidate, especially yeah. in these low interest rate environments. So, yeah, there are lots of lots of potentials. I mean, one, you know, the gold stocks have done well. Uh, you know, people are uh, are sort of you know a lot of naysayers about gold and whatnot. And uh, but I, I got to tell you, the gold stocks were so cheap that uh, forget the fact that they're in the gold business. A lot of these companies were trading at three and four times cash flow. Yeah. So so no wonder they're getting. Uh, taken over, and I, I find, and so they've had a good run. Our favorites were all the the low cash flow multiple companies, and they basically they've all done well. Uh, we don't particularly like the big ones. We like the sort of the mid cap and smaller companies. But I got to tell you, that it's it's fantastic to me, like because we've been pouring over all these uh, all these global gold companies. Mm-hmm. We found this uh, this little company, right, New Market uh, uh, Inc. and NMI. Uh, have you heard of this company? They, no. They're in Australia. They're based uh, the office, the head office is in Vancouver, but they're based in Australia. They run three mines in Australia. Now, the cash flow of this company, you know, they've got a little bit of debt. They've got uh, they've got three operating mines. Uh, you do the math. You take the enterprise value, divide by their uh, their EBITDA, and, and and the multiple is basically three. If you look at every other gold stock on the planet. The multiple's north of five. So why is this thing so cheap? So we look into it and and uh, we speak to the CEO, look at all the analyst reports, and sure enough, the thing is absurdly inexpensive. And so uh, there's there's just another one, just to pick one. And, and forget, gold doesn't even have to move for this company to be, uh, you know, attractive. So well, that's a great I, place to leave it for us, as our time is short, but. Uh, yep. Uh, Paul, I, I, just so you know, you can listen back. I'm going to hold you to that, that we're going to have to visit again. We'll, we'll check out those energy socks again. Paul Beatty is BT Global. Uh, terrific track record since its inception 10 years ago now. Uh, one of Canada's top fund managers. I've got to take a break. I'll come back, though. I've got a shocking stat. Stay with us. I'm glad you're with us. You're listening to Money Talks. Now, Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. That means you get paid first. There's no fees attached with it. And what you do is they're in the tech sector. So just go to soleraclub.com for that. And by the way, if you're listening today with me in Calgary, uh, when is it? It's uh, Saturday, March 5th. So it's a week today at 1 o'clock in the afternoon at the Globe Cinema. They're going to be screening... Uh, Martin, the documentary about Martin Armstrong called The Forecaster. He'll also be available via Skype for a Q&A, a live Q&A after the documentary. It's hosted by Andrew Rulin of Integrated Wealth Management. If you go to moneytalks.net, you can click on the banner there on that page. And uh, it's absolutely free, although attendees will be asked to make a cash donation to the Calgary Food Bank. But that's next Saturday at 1 o'clock, The Forecaster. It's the documentary about Martin Armstrong and a live Q&A with Marty after that. So keep that one in mind. Time now for this week's uh, shocking stat of the week. I got a couple for you. One, thanks to Dennis Gartman on this one. I want to come back to one of the themes that we've had on Money Talks really for well over a year, and that is the emerging debt 
crisis coming out of emerging markets. And why? Because the huge drop in commodities, there's been billions of dollars borrowed, but it's been borrowed in U.S. funds. So their currency fell while, uh, you know, their payments are made in U.S. dollars and their economy's weakening. So it's like the triple whammy there. And look at Brazil. It was downgraded to junk bond status for, as an example, this past week. But I want to talk about Venezuela just for a second. And it's just to give you an example. You say, well, what's Venezuela got to do with me? Again, we should have learned how global the financial institutions are. Somebody's lent this money and they're in trouble. You know, I'm looking back in 2012. They had export oil-related export earnings of just under about $80 billion, So keep that in mind. You know, and it falls a bit in, two, in uh, 2013 down to $70 billion. Well, 2014 down to $58 billion. You know, then the real fun begins as oil really starts its precipitous decline. You know, just last year, its total oil export uh, earnings were down 20 to 24 billion, and you know what they're projecting this year? 18 billion. They may be lucky with that one. It's incredible. 18 billion. That's down from 80 four years ago. And of course, like governments do, they create this infrastructure. I mean, if uh, any country is well, there's many, there's much competition, but talk about a failed socialist experiment right now, and that is in Venezuela. You know, if crude remains at $32 a barrel, Venezuela is going to take 90 to 95% of those earnings just to pay its debt obligations. I mean, it's an incredible mess, and I bring it up just because this is symptomatic of what's going on. We're not through the debt crisis. I think we're still actually in early days, but uh, we're sure going to see that. And speaking of debt, just a quick warning. We had the Ontario budget this week, Talking about $300 billion in debt plus, they spend $11.4 billion on interest payments, which is the third biggest line item in their operating budget. But I just want to warn you about something. They have, got, they have moved so much debt off the books. It's called off-budget debt. And that's why you can say, hey, we've got a $5.7 billion deficit, but actually the provincial debt's going to rise by $12 billion. That off-budget debt, it's an accounting kind of, I think at times you can go right to it's an accounting trickery is 26% of their GDP, just that one or or 12% of their GDP, rather just that side alone. Then they've got to add on the on budget debt of around 26%. Bottom line is we talk a lot about federal debt. We should be talking a lot more about the debt in Ontario, in Quebec, in Newfoundland and Alberta's debt. I'm not worried about their deficit, obviously in big trouble after what's gone on this week, but you've got to look at all three levels of government. Take a break. I'll come back. I got Ozzy Jurek. Hey, what if the foreign buyers started to leave the Vancouver and Toronto market? It's a big story there. Well, I'm going to tell you what's going on in Hong Kong because that may give us a little bit of a hint. We'll do that when we come back on the Money Talks Network. Looking forward to my shocking stat. Oh, I mean, my sorry, I said shocking stat. I meant it to say my Goofy Award. I've got a great Goofy Award planned for you, one that should get your blood boiling. Right now, though, very pleased to have Ozzy Jurek joining me. Ozzy, I was just thinking, you know, one of the big, obviously the big impacts on the real estate market in uh, Vancouver, Toronto, has been international buying coming out of Asia, coming out of China. Well, what would happen if something slowed down there, I think that's still maybe the biggest risk factor. And lo and behold, I was reading something you did that said, you know what? It may already be happening in Hong Kong. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, I know that Dennis Gartman, who you feature often on the show, he says that markets go up until they go up, you know, until they go down. And there's always something that triggers it, whether it's Calgary, you mentioned earlier. I mean, it, it really is turning into something really awful in terms of uh, price declines. And there's always some sort of a trigger. Nothing goes up forever. And when we look at Hong Kong, there's a sharp reversal in Hong Kong home sales. According to the land registry data, only some 2,800 sales uh, in January, which is down 15% from October, but 42% less than it was in November. So it's accelerating. Then the South China Morning Post reported that there's a rising negative equity throughout Hong Kong. Condo prices have lost 20% of value since 2014. And it even quoted... Uh, three days ago, that panicky owners are dumping small apartments. So clearly there's a big change underway there. Well, and, and again, it's, it's a reminder of how fast things change. When you get into a trend, it doesn't matter if it's a downtrend or the uptrend, people sort of can't imagine it changing and being different. And as I say, my big worry in the Vancouver market is that, uh, and the Toronto market, is you know, the Chinese government has worked extremely hard to try and prevent capital from leaving. They have not been successful at this point, but it seems like every month or two months they've got a new set of restrictions on that. And I just think you remove uh, that buyer from the upper end of those markets, uh, we'll see a dramatic impact uh, at this point. And that's why it caught my eye when I saw Hong Kong, I mean, which is a more expensive market, obviously, but again, really accessing, obviously, the same buyers. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that, you know, one of the things is always that, that shows a, a big changes in the wind is the sale of land. There was a big condo project in Hong Kong uh, two weeks ago that showed, uh, sold at 1,848 uh, Hong Kong dollars per foot. That's really relatively cheap compared to what we're selling right now. And Victor Lai uh, Kin Fai, the chief executive of Centerline Professionals, told the South China Morning Post that he thought, most surveyors dropped their eyeglasses after they read the sales outcome because the price tag dropped, showed that it dropped 60% in five months when the previous land right next door to it sold at 4560 per square foot. So there's clearly something underway. The other thing is that I'm noticing in Vancouver, you know, markets usually change when the buyers pay too much for the land. That does, I remember the, the company that bought the the Olympic site, you know, uh, some of the largest developers in Vancouver, they shook their head. How much did they pay for the land? And in the end, it didn't work out. And so when people pay too much, that is our eyebrow raisers, in our facts by facts this week, we uh, put out a deal uh, in Vancouver that the last deal a month ago was at 500 a foot. It was a commercial property. Now it's sold at 1,000 a foot. Yeah. No rhyme or reason. Yeah. Well, those are the kind of things that start giving you headaches uh, with that. Hey, look, I just want a quick thing on this. You've got a lot of people, obviously, out in the marketplace. Uh, you're seeing a, a strong market, obviously, in Vancouver, but also spreading out into Nanaimo and Victoria, et cetera. But a couple of quick thoughts on sort of one of these. Uh, we can do more on this later, but, uh, you know, do's and don'ts, kind of. Well, proper property management. All the joy you ever have on buying a property is lost if you don't analyze and hire the proper property management. It's a business, treated as a business. Your property manager has to have rules. Now, particularly also with the, the impending uh, relaxing of the rules on part, you know, you want to make sure even the people mm-hmm. that don't do all of those things, a good property manager will look for. Finally, you take a look at your pre-sale, that there are some seven things, and maybe time-wise we'll maybe leave it to another week, but it's really important to understand how to do the pre-sale deal. So many people are being... Uh, are buying the, the pre-sale uh, properties right now and not really sure what they are, 
what they're doing and, and from the basics of taking pictures on, of the show suite to make sure that you uh, have, uh, can assign the unit, that you have the documents read over by everybody and so on. And uh, so there's a lot of things in the marketplace that you, you should be aware of. Uh, yeah, we're going to actually do something on that. Remind me of that, Ozzy, because, uh, of course, that's so popular at this point. Uh, but we do have time for a couple of hot properties. Yeah, and I just have a quick thing, Mike. You mentioned Donald Trump. As you know, Donald Trump wrote a real estate book in which he says the best real estate advice he ever received. And then I am the only Canadian had a chapter in that book. So I want him to win. I mean, imagine the press and I have this book together. I mean, I just love it. <laughs> and then, of course, last week he says, it's tangible, it's solid, it's beautiful, it's artistic. And from my standpoint, I just love real estate. I mean, Donald Trump's my man. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> then you can be running around going, I co-authored a book with him. Yeah, there can you, you go. imagine? The a, milk could tr- fall, it's worth. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, hot property. Quinnell, we have two one-bedroom, uh, two two-bedroom uh, suites. Uh, they are below assessed value. The young man wants to sell them to pay off his student loans, so he's, he's letting them go cheap. They're rented at 600 a month. They're priced at 70000 a piece. And in Kimberley, we have a fabulous duplex, three minutes to quad share, two, two furnaces, two hot water tanks, four baths, two hot tubs, double garage, fully furnished, 429000 there we go. And of course, uh, for details of that, Ozzy's just picking out stuff that looks interesting to him. Just go to juroc.com, J-U-R-O-C-K.com. Have a tra- great weekend, Ozzy. And you too, Mike. I mean, co-author with Donald Trump. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I'm going live at the trading desk and I've got a goofy award. Stay with us on the Money Talks Network. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club and it's time now to go right to the trading desk. Victor Adair joins me on the line now. Uh, Vic, as I say, you, you, I, I want to make the distinction between traders and uh, investors. Uh, been a fascinating traders market right now. Is to, you know the crude bounces off at twenty six and makes a nice run. Canadian dollar, you know, there's a big list out there. You know, I was just listening with Paul Beatty, and I thought the most interesting thing to me, anyway, that he had to say. He pointed out the people at natural gas is at a dollar seventy five. Let me tell you something. A buck seventy-five for nat gas. This is New York delivery nat gas. Is the lowest price we've had in sixteen years. You know, crude oil is kind of hogging the headlines about how cheap energy is, but it's not just crude. And crude, by the way, also you know at, at real low levels here compared to our historical range. But coal, uranium, the whole energy sector is low. And if I look at the forward strip on natural gas, I see that the futures market is pricing natural gas under three bucks all the way out six years from now. And I'm going to look back when I just eyeball the chart. Natural gas over the last 16 years has averaged about five bucks. So energy is cheap. And here's my point and is, that, is how it applies to the currency markets. When you have a low cost, domestic source of energy in the United States that helps them attract capital because capital will come to America for safety and opportunity and that will contribute to a rising US dollar it makes uh, America a better place to invest than other spots in the world and that's one of the reasons I, I just remain longer term as like from an investor point of view bullish to the U.S. dollar. I, you know, and you think, and look at that mixture. You've got record low interest rates. You've got really significant lows in energy costs. Uh, in our case, in Canada, of course, you've got the low currency that makes your exports cheaper. 
Come on, how can't we make better economic progress? <laughs> hey, well, hey, Mike, you, you just reminded me. Another thing that Paul said was about the gold mining companies. Yeah. Let me tell you, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. The number of barrels of oil that you have to pay to be able to buy one ounce of gold is off the charts high. We're over 40 barrels of oil to buy one ounce of gold. What that means to the gold mining companies is that their energy costs are cheap. And the, 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 it's what they spend on energy to go mine gold is a big part of their budget. So with the gold price strong, energy prices down, the operating leverages on the gold mining companies ought to be doing much better. And of course, since the lows here the last couple of months, the index of gold producing company, you know, the, the share index of that is up about 50 percent, while gold prices are up about 20 Stands to reason. Uh, hey, just quickly, Canadian dollar, get a good, good, a quick hit on that from you. Yeah, Canada's got it's a bit of a puzzle for me. I mean, on Friday, for instance, every currency in, that I watched was uh, weaker against the U.S. dollar, and Canada was bid a little higher. I had been short of Canada, you know, the last couple of weeks on my short-term trading account. I took that position off because I was just puzzled with it. I did put it back on again on Friday. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to take much heat on that. I think there's maybe two things. One is there's a big outstanding short position in Canada. And as Canada goes higher, those guys are motivated to cover. And I think also there is foreign buying of assets in Canada because people think we're on sale. So I think Canada could possibly have a little upside here yet. Uh, although, you know, I just remain very bullish to the U.S. dollar relative to all currencies. Well, we'll keep uh, up on it next week. Vic, have a terrific weekend. Thank you, Mike. My thanks to Victor. My thanks also to Paul Beatty. My thanks to Kyle Green and, of course, Michael Levy and Ozzy Jurek. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment, meaning you get paid first. There are no fees attached with it. It is in the tech sector. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, we're going to love the whole infrastructure thing going on. It's so dominant when we talk about economics right now in, in Canada. And it's going to be the rationale for just about everything. And I think we got our first hint when we were told that it wasn't just we're building bridges or roads for infrastructure. The federal money was also going toward environmental and social infrastructure. My goodness, if saying social infrastructure doesn't open the door to just about everything, I'm not sure what would. Now, I have to behave myself here because I'm, I'm actually really fed up with political BS in this environment. And, uh, you know, simply nodding the head by so many in the public when they hear a phrase like infrastructure is a bit much to me. So let me reiterate, the infrastructure program will be a good or a bad idea. And it depends totally what projects are chosen, how much uh, political considerations superseded economic ones, and how effectively the money is spent. So with that in mind... And with a big flashing warning sign to all those big government advocates who don't need to have the details to support the program, let me share with this one. Let me introduce you to a $10 million project, not quite yet complete, because it's behind schedule. All three levels of government put up money from funds targeted for infrastructure, regional and economic development, education and tourism. That all came. That was the infrastructure money. My gosh, I feel like standing up and saluting. How many buzzwords can I get into a sentence there? I'm talking about the new 10 million plus Canadian Olympic Committee headquarters in Montreal. My thanks, by the way, Michael Levy and I were talking about this. Michael brought this to my attention. But the major accounting firm Deloitte issued an audit of the project and revealed that 2.9 million was spent on the boardroom. I'm not suggesting there's no need for a boardroom, but come on. 
2.9 million is a ton of money, taxpayer money. But here's my personal favorite, especially given if you know what about the lot of our Olympic athletes, they live hand to mouth. I mean, they may, they'll be lucky to get 30,000 a year for their Olympic card. That has to cover everything, you know, the food, rent, clothing, everything. Okay, so given that, you know how much they spent on the grand opening celebratory party of this not quite finished facility, Canadian Olympic Committee? Over a million dollars. Boy, if that's not dealing with someone else's money very differently than you would your own, there is no way that that happens. A million bucks on a grand opening celebratory party. You know what? I think the athletes would agree with me. That money's much better spent elsewhere. But it's a great example of what planet, another planet, for example, these people live on. It is absolute elitism. That's all the time I have. I hope you go to moneytalks.net. You can click on and go to the Forecaster movie a week from now, but also get the daily business comments. You know, help inform your friends. Uh, Very important, but it's moneytalks.net. Thanks for listening.